Henry Ford, okay, had a guy. Henry Ford, it's in the book Alchemy. There was a guy who was, he had brought in some consultants and they said, you seem to run an efficient business, Mr. Ford, but there's a guy down there who you seem to pay like $50,000 a year, some immense fortune at the time. And all he does is sit, you know, he sit in his office with his feet on the desk. And Henry Ford replies, that's absolutely uh, true. But two years ago, he had an idea that saved me $3 million. And when he had that idea, his feet were exactly where they are now. Welcome back to the Quest for Questions podcast for the part two of the mind-bending conversation with Rory Sutherland, uh, the luminary of the world of advertising and problem solving. If you missed part one, we journeyed through a labyrinth of why fame uh, concentrates the uh, satisficer's way of travel and promoting countries for tourism. It's a must lesson like a first half of a football match that you don't want to miss the highlights of. Today we are diving back to explore the delicate balance between exploitation and exploration, the secret sauce of, uh, behind top salespeople and the enigma of compensating innovation. Think of it as a second course of a gourmet meal where the flavors get even more complex. Our key questions for this round are, how do organizations bridge the gap between exploiters and explorers? What's the secret sauce behind top performing salespeople? And how do you properly compensate for groundbreaking ideas? This is Conrad Yerba Mateatic, and we are about to kick off the second part of the conversation with the one and only Rory Sutherland. Buckle up. What, what is the potential for a greater and richer form of human interaction when, you know, you, you don't have to actually travel to meet someone? And where, incidentally, by the way, it's irrelevantly, okay, you can have slightly more speculative meetings because the opportunity cost is lower. So when I agree to meet you, okay, now, first of all, you know, I love you and all that, but I'm not going to fly into a remote part of Argentina to meet you. I know, I know. If so I went to Ogilvy's travel department and said, there's this Polish guy, right, you know, and I was just thinking if you could get together on the flight, they're going to say, what the hell are you talking about? Now, I don't need anybody's permission to hold this meeting, okay? It's partly at working time, but I can just go ahead and do it because it costs zero. Okay? Secondly, I'm not that bothered about saying yes to the meeting because how do I cancel the meeting, okay, right? Okay, I would have felt a bit bad about it, and you would have gone, oh, that's a bit of a bummer, okay? But it wouldn't have been a big deal. We would have rescheduled it for two days later, what the heck. If you were traveling to see me, even if you were traveling from, say, Leeds to London to see me, and I cancel the meeting, that's a serious, I feel like a total asshole, and you're actually really angry, okay? Now, that's important, because every time you arrange a physical meeting, there's a degree of commitment or non-optionality to that meeting. Okay, which is actually problematic. What do I do now? You've, you've agreed to fly over from Argentina to meet me in London, and I, I'm supposed to be working on a pitch. You know, that's a bit of a dilemma, right? That's true. No, but actually, in Zoom world, Zoom world, the number of serendipitous encounters outside your workplace, people always say, oh, you missed people must be in the office for the value of serendipitous encounters. I agree with that. Not I know what I think you're suggesting, that it's all remote all the time, okay? Yeah, yeah. But equally, there must be a value. It's rather like, you know, quite often, and, and I said the other value of working from home is that, which nobody actually clocks, is that it gets people out of the open plan office. And the open plan office is kind of a catastrophe, I think, in many ways. 
I don't think you can do dink work and I don't think you can do social work. So, you know, what's the point? Okay. It's neither, it's neither sociability nor is it solitude. And the working environment, the hybrid working you want is actually three days of solitude and two days in the pub, you know, with your, with your colleagues. That would be actually pretty much optimal from the point of view of productivity. Okay. It isn't five days, whatever it is, it's a barbell, as the seat talent would call it. It's two extremes. Now, what the open plan office seeks to do is to solve for the average, and it ends up solving for nothing. Same with five days of work, right? Five days of work, a weekend, it's also sort of like this. Instead of, for example, working for, I don't know, three weeks, all days, and then having like three weeks off. I mean, no one really, no one really researched the productivity of the open plan office. The reason was the finance department liked it because it saved money. Okay. And the HR department liked it because you no longer had arguments over who got an office and who got a bigger office and who got a smaller office. So it kind of just, it kind of just made a load of decisions really easy. I, I, I think most of the research on open plan offices is actually highly negative. There's certainly evidence that shows that people email people in close proximity themselves in an open plan office much more often than they do in other settings. Okay. But that's not a bad measure of when things aren't as productive as they should be. And there's another, you know, so quite often, you've got to think of the solution. Okay. And then you think of the solution and you realize there are other benefits to the solution, which haven't been counted in. Now, just to give an example, um, having studied network theory a bit and complexity, I'm a very big devotee. I think Britain should have an open pla- an open access locker network for e-commerce delivery and returns. To remove road congestion, too many vans, it's simply too expensive delivering 25 million households rather than 25,000 locations, okay? There are lots and lots of reasons where you can make the case for this locker system of, of delivery and returns. Most people, most days, travel from where they live to a place of slightly greater population density. In the UK, you probably only need 20,000 lockers to cover the whole, maybe part of the north of Scotland and a few remote areas of Wales. But 20,000 lockers... boxes are popular now. You know, the boxes, the, the impost. Impost. Impost, exactly. It's from Poland. The Dutch are apparently planning some network where every locker is basically within walking distance of your own, uh, uh, with, with, with extreme, I mean, the population density of the Netherlands is very, very high. And then I suddenly realized, hold on, there's another thing you can do with a locker network, which you can't do with a domestic delivery. You can deliver at three o'clock in the morning. You can deliver at 11 o'clock at night. You, now, you can't do that in a residential area, right? I mean, either the recipient goes insane or else, okay, or else your neighbors go insane, okay? Because there's a bloody van pulling up at three in the morning. They think they're going to be vulnerable. Now, if the locker's at a gas station, that can happen anytime you like. No, it became huge popular because I even now, when I have the choice to, to have a courier, I would always send most of my friends and people live in Poland. I choose this because you can go anytime you like. I think you have now like 24 hours or 48, but then you can prolong it by one day. And it's perfect, to be honest. And I think it's, it's this great, this, I think this, basically, I heard the sentence, innovation is basically 
engineering around a, a, a seemingly apparent either or choice, sort of like this dual thinking to the both end like that Roger Martin talks about, right? That I think a lot of that times we are, we are because I think Roger Martin is the best person I think that in business and marketing I've come across, well, since like recent drought and a few names, I did Jerry Bulwar would come close as well. But I completely venerate, well, I met Roger Martin in Cannes, actually. I completely venerate the guy. He's absolutely fantastic. And yeah, he yeah. writes exactly about this kind of thing, which is it, the design thinking is the creative resolution of things that lesser people think are contradictory. Okay. Or a trade-off, right? Like a trade-off thinking versus that the, the economics. Is... Nicholas Druin, who's an Australian economist, thinks that the introduction of the concept of the trade-off to economics has had enormous costs because economists just look for trade-offs and assume things are either or, and there's a kind of optimization problem somewhere in the middle, okay? Now, the creative person would say, what if this isn't a trade-off? You know, the classic thing is Cunard, okay? Right, planes are fast, okay? Ships are slow, okay? What we've got to do is make the journey part of the holiday. So Cunard effectively was a, was a, a liner company which invented the cruise industry. I mean, that's a gross oversimplification, but, but more or less, you know, that's how it happened. Okay. And so if we, if we actually assume that travel time is not a disutility, then actually we don't have a problem being slower than the plane. That's obviously going to be a niche in the market, but you still get to survive. Before air travel. What did that? What did, what did transatlantic liners do? They completely filled the blue ribbon, which was how fast you could cross the Atlantic. Okay, mm. so before the aircraft, the jet aircraft, you know, came along, uh, cruise ships competed on speed. Yeah, you said about the Italian one, which had some sort of anti-seasickness mechanism, which I thought was really clever. But for the most part, they competed on speed. No, which is, I think you said one of this example too about like where is the best to, uh, place to sell luxury cars, and you said it's at the actually at the. Yeah, uh, when people are selling yachts and, and, and aircraft, yeah, yeah, <laughs> because like the the comparison, right? <laughs> There's a real difference up there like, behind you. Yeah, yeah, in in Catamarca, they they are like crazy. I, I, if you saw, look, good drink, good drink, yeah, lemons and and oranges. It's uh, just it's fall off the trees are fantastic. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's uh, winter and it's most of the, it's the middle of winter and the, all the August now, it was like 30, 35 degrees. <laughs> so how hot is it there in the summer? Ooh, hot, 40. Right. Interesting. Yeah. But, oh, but it's, uh, but it's windy too. Very windy. It's like almost all year wind and very dry. I was just wanted to kind of run by you some of the things. For example, no, one was the about obvious atoms. I read this book. It's actually yes. really, uh, well, I listened to this fantastic book. Yeah. yeah, this is, I, I think I would recommend it to more people about it. It's like a quick, it's an audio book, even like 40 minutes or something. It's 40, it's very 40 minutes is an audio book. It's literally a sort of 30, 20 minute read. If you read it as a book. Uh, when I became a creative director at Ogilvy, the boss of Europe at the time, a guy called Mike Walsh, gave me a copy of the book. And I was kind of a bit at it because he actually collected kind of Edwardian era and older, mostly children's books. 
But I kind of thought, well, why have you bought me this kind of hokey self-help guide? Shouldn't you have bought me like a subscription to Harvard Business Review or McKinsey Quarterly, you know? And um, I was slightly peeved, I admit. And then I left the book on the shelf, and then I picked it up and took it to the lavatory a month later. And it was a life-changing read. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. But what Just did you think I went from it? Wow. Uh, the the, the long-form version of Obvious Adams, I would argue, is the film The Big Short, which is everybody else had a theory and an assumption and these people actually went and, rather than using the data they had, they went and looked, okay? They went down to the mortgage, they went down to that huge conference in Las Vegas and realized the people were basically assholes. Gillian Tett did something similar. She's an anthropologist who wrote a fantastic book called The Silo Effect. Nassim Taleb spotted that the statistics they were using were fundamentally erroneous, that there was far too much based on the Gaussian distribution in terms of risk profiling. And then the people of the Big Short basically then went and talked to strippers in Miami who told them they owned eight houses, you know, or six condos in a house. And they realized this whole thing has become entirely detached from its morals. You know, that it's basically a catastrophe waiting to happen. It's connected, I think, to this principle, you know, from the, the war. I studied the, the art of war and things that we yeah. wrote, like a, a small book for Amazon with my ex-mentor on, on marketing. And it was, the map is not the territory, right? That <laughs> This is one of the boots on the ground that you have to, like, go and see. So that's your, like, your main... Actually, the, guy, the guy who said that's actually Polish, isn't he? Kukzynski? Am I right? Who? The guy who said the map is not territory is actually a Polish-American, I think, called Alfred... Oh, really? Korzyn it's something like Korzynski or something like that. I, I didn't so know he, that. He was a Polish sort of thinker and very, very interesting guy because yeah. I, I, there's an example I discovered which is lovely about the map not being the territory, okay, which is that when you model for something and worse still, become very attached to your model, okay, even tiny differences between the model and reality can prove decisive in a complex system, okay? Mm. And the story I discovered about that was that when they did the raid on the compound of Osama bin Laden, okay? Now, these guys, right, the Navy SEALs, okay? They plan for everything, okay? They rehearse everything. They practice everything. You know, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just pitched up at the door and see what happens. But that's why I've never been headhunted to become a Navy SEAL for that and many other reasons, okay? They don't play. These guys do not play it by ear. So they built a complete replica of the compound somewhere in the woods in Western Virginia, and they rehearsed basically the raid like time after time after time before they actually did the raid. And then on the day of the actual raid itself, okay, the helicopter crashes. Now, where did that happen? Turns out that when they built the model of the Bin Laden compound in Abbottabad, okay, they didn't bother recreating the wall around the outside. They just built a chain link fence. And when a helicopter lands next to a chain link fence, it's like landing on a field. It's absolutely fine. All the kind of downdraft escapes, just as it would if there were no fence there at all. Okay? Uh, in reality, the Bin Laden compound had a wall on a chain link fence, and you get some weird vortex effect. 
if you get a radio control helicopter, right, you try and land it in the cardboard box, it comes down, 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 it descends perfectly fine. And then as soon as it hits the top of the box, it starts going batshit crazy because the effective vortices created around the helicopter base. Now, I'm sure the helicopter pilot knew about this effect, but the fact was when they rehearsed the landing, the actual model had one tiny missing component, okay, which then becomes, which seems irrelevant when you're designing the model, but then turns out to be decisive when you actually impose the model on reality. Mm. I think that's very common. And what, what created is people who have unbelievable, and I wonder if it's actually a problem with higher education, it's a problem with the expansion of higher education. I don't know. People are more attached to the kind of sanctity of their model than they are concerned by deviations from the modern reality. And they'll almost do everything to shoehorn reality into their pre-ordained measure of the world. And if, you know, and you see how got, you know, I mean, an example would be, okay, you know, and what happens is when you get a concentration of like-minded thinkers at the top, these effects actually don't, don't get cancelled out. We all have a discussion about the Chinese economy. But one of the things that you can say about the Chinese economy is that the Polit it shows that the Politburo in China is absurdly over-dominated by engineering graduates. Because it's a kind of infrastructure first. Now, don't get me wrong. In some ways, infrastructure first is a great thing to do. You have this crazy statistic now, like, okay, this is a much, much poorer country than the United States in terms of median income, average income, and everything else. There are whole swathes of China away from the, you know, the centers and the east coast, which are effectively, you know, I mean, shanty towns. I mean, people living in Cain. Okay. And yet, like 98 of the 100 tallest bridges in the world are now in China, not the United States. I know there are a few in France and so forth. Now, you notice that Indians don't build cities that are un, uh, that are unpopulated or uninhabited. They don't build railways, start branches, okay, right? It's a kind of organic approach, and it's, you know, Indian culture is gloriously kind of non-homogeneous, you know. Yeah. It's gloriously kind of dissenting and diverse, okay? Now, you know, what you notice is that when you put a bunch of experts together, what they want to do is demonstrate their expertise to each other. A consequence of that is that they become less and less creative because if you want to demonstrate your expertise as an engineer, the only mechanisms that gain you status as an engineer are engineering ideas. Okay. If, if you went in as an engineer and you talked about the Uber back and you said, now very good engineers would know this. I mean, really smart engineers would go, no, actually, it doesn't really matter whether you wait five minutes or 15 minutes for a car. It's a non-linear relationship. What matters is that you're not left in a state of uncertainty, right? But a hell of a lot of people will go, no, 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 we must have a predictive algorithm which sends cars out to areas where we anticipate high demand. And that might work. It might not be a totally stupid thing to do, okay? It might be, it might achieve efficiency gains. Yeah, I buy all that, okay? But it's equally something you can only do when you're a really, really big cab company, okay? Mm. And it's equally something which is catastrophic if you get it wrong. 
Because if you send them taxi drivers into the middle of nowhere because you think there's a rave, but there isn't, they're not going to thank you, okay? The website Edge Arc. And, and once I remember I wrote your answer day about, about this, there was this one year when they did like, what is the most underrated scientific theory or scientific idea, yeah. something there were. And you wrote, interestingly, that in your opinion, the most underrated is the theory of sexual selection, actually. Not that everyone knows evolution, but most people are not really aware of that much of sexual selection, how crucial it is. And I've been I reading... I think in a way it was Darwin's bigger idea because we would have got to natural selection eventually anyway, okay? That's the first point. Probably required advances in geology, really, so people would revise timescales, okay? But we would, have, we would have got there anyway. Whereas sexual selection is a bigger leap. Explaining the peacock's tail is a bigger leap. I think, in terms of uh, the imagination. Or rather, you know, it's a more unlikely idea in many ways. It's one of those ideas which never occurred to you, but then becomes absolutely self-evident once you've heard it. Obviously, yeah. it is necessary in nature to communicate things. You know, once, once animals have evolved motion and smell and vision, then... Watch one of the best approaches to survival is to influence their behavior. Okay. And so, so you still think this is the most underrated, like scientific maybe, idea? Maybe, maybe. I, I just thought it was interesting because everybody goes blah, 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 natural selection. But there are probably 20 people who have a vague grasp kind of, you know, standard evolution. For every person who has a grasp of what you might call sexual selection and, you know, feedback loops and things like that. I yeah. think the sexual, like for, for me, why it became so when I started you know, reading and, and thinking about it more and Matt Ridley, now the Red Queen effect, you probably know Matt Ridley's uh, book, the, yeah. the Red Queen. Um, Fantastic thing. Yeah. But, but, yeah. Because I, I think that this, it, this, like whole framework applies really well to, to the world of marketing because like one of the, the key, for example, principles is that for a signal, to be honest, it has to be costly. Yeah. I think that's like basically a lot of marketing, right? Like, it, it, like we want to make it efficient, but if we make it efficient, most of the time it doesn't work. Uh, and then there you comes the surprise, which we're talking about. And one of the things, one of the things that business will have to get it, get, get it around is the fact that if you want to grow, growth involves some degree of inefficiency, okay? Because selling to new people, customers will always be a bit less efficient than selling to old ones, okay? Getting someone to shift from Airbnb to a hotel room is going to be more difficult than getting someone to shift from the Hilton to the Doubletree. But since Hilton and the Doubletree are both owned by the same hotel, the value of gaining a new customer is much greater, even though the behavioral change resulting is less efficient. Okay. And so one of the things we'll have to stop doing if we want to have another 50 years of interesting economic progress, not necessarily growth, but development, innovation, and progress. You know, I don't think, by the way, economic growth is necessarily entails growth in the volume of consumption of 
raw materials or the production of carbon. There are lots oh, of Oh, you said it once. That that's the problem with capitalism. You said that it lowers the, the cost, but then it becomes in the mind more less valuable. So that's like yes. a huge problem. So, with absolutely, yeah. I mean, I read the most extraordinary thing once. Um, one of my arguments, and my father is the first person to have suggested this, is my father always thought that property in the UK in the 1970s and probably the early 80s, but throughout the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, was too cheap. His theory was that the reason property was cheap was that there were a huge number of people who did not own or needed to buy televisions, washing machines, dishwashers, you know, foreign holidays, cars. And those things were enormously expensive. And part of the reason for insane expansion, it's partly low interest rates. It's partly a psychological factor that people spend as much on property as they can afford because they assume it's going to go up in value. And that there's going to be a multiplier effect on their borrowing. But it's partly the fact that actually we don't compete on status much in terms of it. I mean, there are Londoners who have, you know, the car was a major status symbol. Okay. Yeah. I can remember when chest freezers and tumble dryers were a conversation piece. You'd invite people in to see your tumble drive. Okay. That, admittedly, that was 1972. Nonetheless, I can remember it. Okay. All those things, thanks to free market capitalism, you know, economies of scale, division of labor, et cetera, became cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, which left them effectively no longer as status goods. They were kind of, you, you know, you, you know, you have Bosch, Mila, you have all those things, which to a degree estate is good. But I mean, if you look at how expensive those things were in the 1950s and 60s, it was astronomical. You know. And so there is, there is a question that you make something abundant and you deprive it of some of its meaning and value as a consequence of that. I mean, what happens, by the way, because there are these factory-made or the, these artificially-made diamonds now, Okay, they can basically make diamonds, right? Well, what happens? Okay, I don't know. You know, do you get people who just have, you know, like massive jewelry? I mean, or, or maybe this is good for the environment, by the way, but anyway, to park it. Do we just not think diamonds are special anymore because they've lost their meaning? If you can go into Claire's accessories and buy something that looks like the fucking Koenor, right? What, what, you know, what, I mean, what, I heard that, 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 that the women are still asking for the real thing. <laughs> In the no, marriages, if you held a wedding for your daughter or whatever, and you wanted to show off, you had a lot of pepper on the table. Exactly. I, no, bus, you get a file of pepper. Be like, whoa, is there a special occasion? There's pepper. Okay. Completely weird. So, so there's something interesting in Argentina. And that got me thinking about how ideas spread. That's a bit still a bit like mystery to me. Maybe you probably are more steeped in this, but there is an example of this really famous beverage in Argentina, like the, the cocktail. It's called Fernet con Coca. It's from uh, uh, Fernet Frank. Fernet and Coke. Yeah. And it's so fascinating for me. I, I tried talking to Argentinians. How did it become a national uh, beverage when in the whole world, like no one drinks it, Italians don't drink it, everyone thinks it's horrible, 
And Argentinians are like, everyone drinks it now with Coke and it's like the national drink. And it's like incredible. And it's spread from Cordoba, where I was living. So the, the ethnic population of Argentina is actually Italian, not Spanish. Okay. More Italian so, than I Spanish, mean, yeah. Peculiarly, during the Falklands War, Spain sort of supported Britain, although they were a bit iffy because of Gibraltar. The, Ital the Italians remain neutral, and the British said it's perfectly acceptable for the Italians to remain neutral because the ethnic population of Argentina is possibly, I don't know, 80% or something Italian. I mean, it's very, very heavily Italian anyway. It's certainly it's lower, but yeah, a lot, a lot. So surname by right is imported from Italy, is that right? I mean, they probably make it no. locally. No, it, it, how it started, it was, it, it's originally Italian because Fernet Branca, the most famous here brand, is Italian. And they first, uh, yeah, imported it and no one was drinking it. Now they, they, they produce it here and there are many brands. Still, the Fernet Branca, the, the Italian one, is most famous. They have a factory here. But for me, it's like f fascinating how something like this can spread that suddenly, like, suddenly. It, it, it's brilliant to study because you get another one, which is absolutely fascinating, which is Jägermeister. Okay. Yeah, Jaeger in Poland. Very much. It's in Austria. I think it's Austrian. It's a liqueur, and it was kind of drunk by, you know, elderly people. Okay. And for reasons which must have been a terrible surprise, I have no idea how it happened, but I will research it for my next book. The American, you know, the Jaeger bomb, the, the American kind of student crowd, it's on the Jaegermeister. In Poland, too. In Poland, too. In Poland, so the Jaeger bomb is a big thing. Yeah, yeah it's big. It's big. You, you have, because they you always have this, this. A fascinating thing. A fascinating thing which happened, which is that someone very, very clever working for Nestle and Japan simply noticed, and this is where I say, this is, look, marketing is like detective work. It isn't like, it isn't like, give me all the data, average it out, wait for the answer to come out. You know, it's not a, it's not a kind of Gaussian, Average, solve for the average and you solve for the whole. It's not like that. Okay. It's like detective work where you go, that there's a dog that didn't bark in the night. That's strange. How come this band did this rather than that? Okay. You know, you look, it's a bit like poker playing. You look for the tell. Okay. The outlier. Well, the ratio died, less than Japan. Just notice that might have been Hokkaido, it might have been another island, but one of the, the smaller islands of Japan. Okay, one time of year, sales of Kit Kat went off the charts. Kit Kat, the chocolate bar. It was a pretty niche product in Japan, I think, but the sales were absolutely crazy. One place, one time. And it turned out that in the local Japanese dialect, but also I think it did mainstream Japanese, but particularly the local dialect, Kit Kat sounded like good luck. And what was happening was that people, when they sent their children off to the exams at school, they gave them a Kit Kat as a good luck gesture, and there's something you eat if their sugar levels dropped, I guess, during the exam. And from this, this whole extraordinary kind of edifice was built in the same way that in Japan, and I'm not making this up, okay, because of one advertising campaign some years ago, the Japanese go to KFC on Christmas Day. You have to pre-order your meal, okay? And I, you know, I'm a big fan of KFC, but, well, I'm sure it's Christmas Day. I mean, a lot easier than playing, you know, 
But I think my wife would give me very short shrift if I said, well, this Christmas, uh, do we go to your mother's or do no, we're going to KFC? I think my mother, my wife would take issue with that, and, you know. But, but get these extraordinary things which are just kind of runaway signaling effects, runaway coincidences. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a butterfly effect in a sense where, you know, something very small and weirdly tangential, okay, uh, suddenly can drive an extraordinary kind of trap. Yeah, I think it always starts small. I mean, the story, for example, for Fernet, the one I read or heard is that at the, at the stadiums uh, of uh, Cordova, uh, the, the, you know, at the end of the matches, like people were, you know, getting drunk and there was, they would run out of alcohol and, and people wanted more. And the only thing left was the Fernet Branca no one liked. So I think they, you know, some bartenders mixed it with Coke because it was horrible. So like mix it with Coke, that's pretty good. Everyone loves and the only thing that's there. And, and, and I guess, you know, people started uh, liking it and somehow it spread over all Argentina. And now, like, I think the Fernet, like, Argentina has like 90% of, of sales. That's of right. Argentina. Yeah, I Lord. think 90% of their sales are Argentine. There's also the weird thing which Rick Rubin talked to me about, which is that when he produced Walk This Way, he was interested in rap, but thought that rap was too far away from music to actually break through. So he combined it with a song, okay, as a kind of gateway drug into rap. Because it's, it's kind of like a stepping stone. And you might say, Fernet is too far away, okay? It's, yeah. It, you know that concept in design, maximally advanced yet acceptable. In other words, you know, in order to innovate, the thing you innovate with has to be comprehensible and recognizable to humans Otherwise, it's simply too unfamiliar to get their heads around, even though it might be superior to innovate to a greater level. There's a famous example of Raymond Lowy producing a fan that was completely silent. And because it was completely silent, no one believed it was cooling them down. Okay, this fan's shit. Because some part of our perception of a fan had learned to think that an effective fan is a bit noisy. It's a fan completely silent. People just undervalued it as a fan. So that's when Louis got the, the, the whole concept of Max Maya, maximally advanced and acceptable. And probably Fernet is too far. French too far. Fernet plus Coke. Okay. Then what you've done is you've built a, a kind of behavioral stepping stone, effectively, to the acceptability of something. And presumably, I don't know, maybe people drink Fernet with a few other things now. I don't know. But there's a really yeah, interesting theory around this, this, which is that the human brain, you mentioned it just before I went to the loo. There's a book by Andy Clark called The Experience Machine, where he posits and to some extent revives a theory which a few other people had in the 19th century, like Helmholtz and I think William Jett, okay, which is the brain is principally a prediction engine and it uses perception to detect and minimize prediction error, not as a source of, of, of raw data. So it's similar to the process in data compression in JPEG photography. You don't describe every pixel in aching detail. Instead, you describe how pixel two is either the same as pixel one, in which case you need very little data, or how it differs from what you might expect pixel two or pixel three to be. And you're going to remove a huge amount of data uh, 
that's needed simply by using the incoming data to revise expectations rather than to generate our model of the world. So it seems like a model of the world of our expectations are built on internally and then kind of revised when we encounter surprise. And I say that marketing is a perception hacking, actually. Uh, possibly explains the hostility to creativity in a way in that if the brain is an, a, a prediction minimum, a prediction error minimization machine. And this apparently, now I'm, I'm basically too stupid to understand this, but I think it has kind of echoes of Carl Friston's free energy principle that you minimize free energy in some way. Well, there's a kind of law of kind of physics, okay, where, you know, complex systems basically tend to minimize. Don't ask, don't ask me to explain that because I read it and that blood starts coming out of my ears. Oh, the guy is patent and genius, but I, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, I can tell he's a genius without fully understanding what he's going on. Okay. But there's something really interesting there because you, you know, in other words, there's a limit to how much you can tinker with people's assumptions and expectations without discomforting them. But on the other hand, young people, in order to learn, probably deliberately expose themselves to surprises. There's a kind of, one argument against that theory is that if we're a prediction error minimization machine, then surely all we'll do is stay inside and stare at a wall and eat the same food every day and go and have a poo at the same time every day. And we won't actually experience any surprises. But in evolutionary terms, we need to calibrate our perception by surprising ourselves. Okay. Because there's a cost to not surprising yourself, which is that your model of the world becomes ludicrously oversimplified. That's the explore exploit, right? And uh, explore exactly, yeah, yeah. There's basically an explore exploit trade off. Well, that's why creative people are annoying, which is we've created this silly bifurcation, which is instead of everybody being 20% creative and 80% exploit, we've got a world where there are a load of people who have exploit jobs like accountants. And a load of people who have crazy jobs like me, okay? We're going to end up annoying each other. Actually, I think the best application for creativity is actually to teach people who are 5% creative to be 20% creative. Maybe the best thing I can do is not actually to go and be creative myself. I'm only one person. I'm not brilliant, but you know. I've practiced that and I've been in an environment which encourages it. But equally, equally, the reason I'm good at it is partly because I work in advertising, which is an unusual milieu in that surprising answers are encouraged rather than penalized. There aren't very many working environments where that pertains, actually. Okay. You know, comedy, yes. Okay. There's creative advertising. There are about, you know, these 10 places, possibly, you know, higher reaches of the law. I don't know, right? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, probably, probably in bloody physics, at the you know, very top level of physics or, you know, whatever, you know, okay? Rachel where, Feynman. Actually, you know, there's, there's one little Niels Bohr quote where he says, you're not really thinking, you're merely being logical, okay? Which is a really important kind of insight. But there are, the, the, reason, the reason I find this easy to do 
is because I'm not shifted yet. I'll acknowledge that. Okay. And I have a natural propensity to look for kind of Python-esque or oblique solutions to problems. But it's also because I've been lucky enough to be in an environment where um, you don't, it's one of very few environments where you can say something stupid and still get promoted if the stupid thing is sufficiently interesting or challenging. So what we've done is we've created this world which has exploit jobs like finance and McKinsey and optimization, whatever. And then we have this business, these people who are explore people. Now, it's had personalities, you know, the random bees would despise the, the, the kind of obedient bees and the obedient bees would see the random bees as complete dilettantes and it ought to be eradicated. Nature has found this kind of balance between the two in terms of explore and exploit. In terms of animal foraging, it's found the balance within the individual animal. Okay, bees have found that balance. Actually, I don't know, because I don't know whether the bees who go off random are different bees or whether those 20% of bee journeys just happen to be a bit random. I, I need to, uh, I mean, I can't tell bees apart. Uh, I, I need a bee expert to answer that question. Okay. But if we could find that balance within individuals, okay, and the best review I had for alchemy was in the Wall Street Journal, and it was a software coder guy, right? And he said, what I love about this book, it was his recommended holiday reading, is that it teaches me I've got a second toolkit I can play. I can play with the logical reductionist efficiency-minded toolkit, or I can play with the psychological, you know, complex, perceptual, phenomenological kind of toolkit. And that both sell it. Just, you know, okay, there's a kind of trade-off between when you want to be exploiting and when you want to be exploring. If you can actually create that world where instead of having 200,000 creative people and 800,000 accountants, okay, you actually had, you know, create everybody being a kind of creative accountant. I think that would be the best outcome, actually. Yeah, because that ties to, there is actually a Roger Martin's article. My favorite of his is, is about the explore, exploit trade-off. And here's a line that really resonates with my experience of like trying to, you know, work and, and have my business as sort of like something of doing marketing, you know, email marketing, copywriting, that's what I've been doing. That that the the explore people, like basically the gist of it, he said that basically the, the exploit people can take when the explore person like, you know, stumbles upon something and it's very, you know, can be long term, you, you don't have like predictable rewards. The exploit person can take advantage of that really like sort of easily, but it doesn't work the other way around. So like if you are the explore person, like you you yeah. you don't really get the, the benefit so, like so as the exploit. To report but, to rational people. Rational people never report to creative people. Okay. And secondly, the burden of proof for a creative idea is 20 times higher than the burden of proof for a random idea. Okay. No, but I mean that the most, for example, also most money, and I've, I, that's why I was connected to a question, like how do you actually, for example, make money from ideas is that it's very, the money is not in the exploration. Actually, the money is usually in the exploitation. And I've struggled in myself that I like always explore. Uh, the real money and, I, and the, the, the big money, the upside, the, the surface area exposure to upside optionality and the resilience the real money shot, to use the language of pornography, okay, is where the random bee shares his discovery with the exploit bee. 
That's yeah. where the real, where you really cash in. Now, I think there are lots of people within organizations who have brilliant creative insights. Salesmen, right? I think that in most B2B companies, the best kind of salesmen they employ have basically hacked into a brilliant approach for selling the product. It's a reframing, it's a dramatization, it's something psychological and cunning. But salesmen don't share, right? Because your reward, remuneration, and status as a salesman is relative to other salesmen. It's not relative to the overall performance of the company. Now, in B evolution, evolution has a kind of social selection mechanism there, where B is where the random times where the random bees stum, okay, would go extinct. Okay, but I think I think there's a fundamental problem, which is if you look at the explore exploit trade off. Okay, I think there's a fundamental problem, which is that if that feedback loop, in other words, there are two things that are critical: that the Obedient bees are content to fund the random bees, and the random bees are content to share with the obedient bees. And if you don't close that loop, the entire system breaks down. How would you do it, for example, as far as compensation? Let's say you work as a, you probably work sometimes as a like consultant, things like like. How do you get compensated properly for your ideas? You know, like. <laughs> Is there some kind of advice you have for people, like if they are not inside a big organization? Henry Ford, okay, had a guy. Henry Ford, it's in the book Alchemy. There was a guy who was, he had brought in some consultants and they said, you seem to run an efficient business, Mr. Ford, but there's a guy down there who you seem to pay like $50,000 a year, some immense fortune at the time. And all he does is sit, you know, he sit in his office with his feet on the desk. And Henry Ford replies, that's absolutely uh, true. But two years ago, he had an idea that saved me $3 million. And when he had that idea, his feet were exactly where they are now. Okay. Now, you can't incentivize that guy on his daily productivity. Because it exploit, sorry, explore doesn't work like. Okay. Yeah. Now, it gets difficult. For the pharmaceutical industry, the majority of people who work in pharmaceutical research spend their entire lives never working on any drug that makes it to market. That's difficult, okay? But they accept the fact that this is just the price you pay. Hollywood accept the fact that you have, you know, a load of clunker films, and they're all funded by the, uh, you know, the surprise blockbuster at some level, okay? You know, actually, probably the Weinsteins who actually cracked an alternative way of doing it. But, you know, the... But, but, as I said, they're not really in the game anymore for obvious reasons. But but they did crack an interesting business idea with kind of higher quality films which were surprisingly popular. You know, that was a kind of discovery in a way. And I can't honestly say I miss them, but surely as a film goer, I kind of do. Okay. I can't say they're myth, but surely as a cinema goer, there is there is a missing kind of component to cinema at the moment. Mm. I'm not interested in comic book characters. I'm 57. I go to the cinema about once every six months. And the last thing I saw was Oppenheimer, right? You know, that's the kind of, you know, problem, I think. And there's a, there's a whole missing audience of cinema goers since that particular formula basically got canned. Mm. I think you, you can, you can recognize and reward it 
the two things you've got to be careful of are one, the time scale, and two, quite often those people succeed in a way that wasn't planned in advance. Okay. So in other words, they quite often deliver not what you are looking for, but something altogether different, penicillin. Okay. Right. No one was looking for penicillin. Fleming noticed it. Okay. Now, if you're to adequately incentivize and remunerate, you know, explore activities, you have to A, have a longer time frame. I mean, explorers can be clever because they can look for quick wins and they can, you know, and if you're a good explorer, I think you can find a few quick wins. You know, it's not the best fucking patch of pollen, but you never, you bastards never looked there, did you? Right. I think you can do, you can play the game a little bit cleverly by having a few quick wins. Also, you need to be very open-minded about your definition of value because with the exploit bees, value is defined in advance, okay? It's basically energy out, energy retrieved, okay? It's a formula. That's what you do. If you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. But the exploit bees, you know, will occasionally deliver value from a basically previous unanticipated source. And there's always a danger in remuneration that people go, that doesn't count. It wasn't what you're planning to do. So the fact that it's valuable is discounted. Okay. You are only deemed to be valuable to the extent that you obtain objectives, which were defined in advance. Now, you know, I'll give you an example. Okay. I'm the vice chairman of Ogilvy. I think it is uncontentious to say that a hell of a lot of people apply to Ogilvy because they've heard of me. Okay. Right. Yeah. Now, that is actually Sorry. very valuable, right? It's very valuable that we get very good people applying to work with us and we get, you know, interesting, diverse, in every sense, employees coming and wanting to work and own it, okay? But there are two problems with it. One, it wasn't what I was asked to do, okay? And two, it's hard to quantify. Actually, okay, I would say if you're a business person of any kind, okay, the most... Well, one of the two or three most valuable pe- things you can do in your entire working life is hire someone good. Okay. Hire someone who? Hire someone who's better than you. David Ogilvy's advice. Okay. Uh, you know, if I go and find someone and, you know, I go and find a, well, I, I won't name them, but I mean, I, you know, once or twice when I was a creative director, I don't know if I was a brilliant creative director, but I did manage to hire four really great people who in many respects made better creative directors than I did. Okay. That's a real game changer. No one knows how to reward it. Okay. Right. I mean, what do you do? Do you say, okay, well, first of all, the value of what I've done only emerges when the person's worked for us for five years. Okay. By which time it's too late to say, you know, that guy, you know, that guy, do you really rate? Well, it was thanks to me. I heard him back in two, you know, 2018. Okay. And secondly, it's impossible to quantify that value anyway. Very easy to quantify what the exploit bees are doing. That's a simple mathematical formula, which is to go with weights of bob, basically, and, and distance travel. Okay. It's a simple optimization problem where all the quantification questions are known. The explore bit is totally different. Okay. In fact, of course, you know, you don't know whether, you know, you don't, you don't know the value of a discovery when you first make it. That only becomes apparent in retrospect. I heard. There was this really famous mathematician. What was it called? He has a really beautiful book and speech on YouTube. 
He worked on the on the communication of Bell Labs and the Bell Labs laboratory. I don't remember. He had one 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 principle about working on the the importance of working on the most challenging problem if you really want to go like far in life. Like he he was saying in in his example of how he got far in in mathematics, but he was giving examples of in general. So so I'm thinking if if it's really key to to work on the most important interesting or, or most challenging problem. Like I'm wondering, you, you probably are involved in many, like what are some, some of the ones that you are working yeah, on right now? And, and maybe problems, you can- Marketing problems are often very, very challenging because you have these two forces ranged against you every time, which are habit and social copy. Mm. So, now it's interesting, the Fernie Branca thing started a football stadium, okay? It would be much, much harder to create a trend out of Ferde Branca in a bar. A single bar probably doesn't have the um, volume of sales to reach critical mass with a new drinks combination. Which stadium was it? Was it Newell's Old Boys, River Plate? Um, no, it was Cordova in the Cordova. I don't remember what it's called. Is that right? No, hold on. No, that won't be right. Oh, Chaleres, Yeah, that's it. Okay. Tajeres, see, Tajeres is the biggest club of Colorado. Tajeres, of course it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like second, I think, now in the league here. But but it's very Cordobes. Like when you talk to Argentinians, they say like Fernet con Coca is like very Cordobes, like this this province and the city. But they drink it everywhere. Yeah. No, but I was asking basically about like, because my idea, we're talking basically going back to principles that that expert is someone that knows more and more about less and less, and it's usually not the experts who innovate, like who are able to to solve the most uh, difficult challenges. So I think I was thinking, in an ideal world, that if you wanted to solve like really challenging, important problems in the world, you'd actually want to like gather people from different fields that would somehow be yeah, yeah. yeah. One, we call this sometimes in the behavioral science practice, we call this lateral category analysis, which is how it's basically has someone already solved your problem. They've just solved it in a different domain. So we've had this UMES problem in London. They introduced this passive tax on older diesel cars going into the city. Now, I would argue the problem they didn't address is what about people who have an old diesel car who can't sell it and have to travel into the city 200 times a year? You cannot charge those people three thousand pounds a year because it'll bankrupt them. Now, where has that problem been solved elsewhere? Well, it's called the railway season ticket because you recognise that if people make a journey very frequently, you don't charge them as much as if they make the journey only occasionally. Mm. Okay, because you wouldn't really have any commuters unless they were a discount for commuting your ticket. In the same way, I think. There's also a thing called beginner's mind, which Rick Rubin talks about, which is kind of Buddhist concept, I think, which mm. is that people who come to something completely breath don't add the assumptions to quote Aikoff, okay, Russell Aikoff. Mm. They, they they don't have the baggage. The wise has if they've worked in a field for years and years and years, they just you know that the white breath through the virtue of ignorance. No, have you heard about the concept of the wise fool that was always in mythology and some Asian stuff? Like 
basically a wise person, but, but a fool in, in a way that approaches a problem with an ignorance. I, even someone said, I think it was Peter Drucker who said that he, he, he approached all his like engagements with his ignorance, not his expertise. Rory, you just wanted to paint a picture a bit of like the, the future. I know you have that for the, for the closing thoughts of like, I know you were running this, this math fest, right? So can yeah, you, you also have this program, which is an online training course. If you Googled Mad Masters, you'll also find my training course online, which is currently offered through the people, the same people who organize MadFest, which is the sort of partner organization to Nutstar. What's the, what's the, 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 the idea behind it? Why did you start, start it and, and go for it? It's about teaching creativity or what's, or is it more yeah. for marketing people You're or more marketing marketers, but sales people, people in any field of life effectively that marketing to quote or misquote Rick Rubin is a way of being, okay? It's a way of seeing the world. It's complementary to the way other people see the world, just as, you know, presumably people, you know, the exploratory bees look at the world in a way that's different to the obedient bees who are just obey, waggle, dance, repeat. It requires a fundamentally different mindset, and it's useful for people, not all the time necessarily, in fact, to do it all the time, Unless you work in advertising or comedy or one of those fields, to do it all the time, we have a very bad career. But to be able to do it when the situation requires it, that's really critical. And about, and can you give like a sneak peek about it? I know you don't want to give too much away, but about your book you are writing, the, the book that's coming. When is yeah. it coming? What is it about? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the idea behind the new book? It's, do you want to win arguments or do you want to solve problems? That's the essence part of the book. And it may or may not be called Stop Making Sense. Any possible date, release dates for now? or uh, I've got to submit it December 24. So my guess would be it would appear in the early part of 2025. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Quest for Questions podcast. <laughs> If your immediate reaction after listening to this episode is either, fuck, that's some great advice, can't wait for more, where do I sign up? Or, man, I had the same idea in mind, but I assumed it's just me being weird. Thank you for sharing. Or, this bastard hurt my feelings, offended my delicate soul, and should be banned from the internet. Then it means we're on the right track, doing God's work. In that case, make sure to subscribe, review, or do whatever else is allowed by technology to support this show. If you want to suggest a quest or have a question worthy of a quest, head to ConradYerba.com. Go down the rabbit hole of truth each and every Sunday. Available on most podcasting platforms, YouTube, and Pirate Bay. Wink, wink. Let Yerba be with you.